her husband was a deputy sheriff. He was shot and murdered in the line of duty. She's here to talk about the murder, what happened afterwards, and more importantly, what it's taken for she and her family to get to where they're at today. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. The place to be online is our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. You'll get access to unique news articles, editorials, and so much more. That's Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. Calling us from Sarasota, Florida. Sarah Winfield on the phone. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us on Law Enforcement Today's show. Very much appreciated. Hello. Good to have you here on the show. Sarah is what we call a survivor. And for those who don't know, that's a term used in a law enforcement family when we have an officer killed in the line of duty, their spouse, their siblings, uh, their children are known as survivors. And unfortunately, we're going to talk about something that... I find very, very difficult to talk about, but it's a conversation needs to be had about the death of your husband, um, Marion County Deputy Sheriff Brandy Winfield. He was murdered in the line of duty back in 2004, correct? Yes. So if I stumble in the conversation at all, Sarah, uh, chances are it's because even after all these years in law enforcement and doing a law enforcement today show, I'm never quite sure what to say. And as a part of me, that struggles and is a fear that I'm going to say the wrong thing and make things worse. And I know that's not possible. Right. It's not possible. I mean, that's a common misconception on law enforcement is if I don't, if I don't know what to say, I just don't say anything at all to surviving family members that I come across. And sometimes that makes us feel abandoned. Yeah. That's um, what I've been told. I mean, there's by people, many people. There are stories about people walking to the other side of the street just to avoid talking to us or totally avoiding us because they're uncomfortable, they don't know what to say, and they're afraid they'll say the wrong thing, and that's the worst thing you can do. I, you know, if you make me, if I start crying, you didn't make me cry. I'm crying because I loved him and I missed him. You know, Join in with me and say his name and talk to me about him. And that's one of the things I've found that even after all these years, and I went through way too many of these when I was on the job, and one was a good friend, and I always say this, I've been friends with his, his wife for many, many years, and I still have this awkward silence. What she and I have done is we're to say, listen, I'm going to talk to you as a friend and we'll talk about what we're going to talk about. Because I I still have that irrational fear. And you know what it is? I could be walking in the hospital and there's all the rules and regulations, the general orders of what you're supposed to do. And you know all that stuff. But when the victim's spouse is heading towards you, it's like you'd want to dig a hole in a wall to get away from him. Right. And... um. There is no policy or procedure. I mean, police officers work off policy and procedure. That's what they're used to. There's a set outline of you do it this way, and there isn't when something like this happens. And the best advice I have is to be human with them. Um, treat them how you would want your spouse treated, how you'd want your kids treated. 
And those are the people that are continuing to be in our lives after 15 years are the people that just treat us like they normally would and have normal conversations with us and aren't uncomfortable with us and can talk about him or talk about, you know, we don't have to talk about him sometimes. Shortly after he died, the, one of the best things that there was one friend of his that did for me is he came over to a house and he knew I wasn't cooking and I love to cook. So he showed up to have dinner with me and watch a movie with me and didn't say a word just because he knew I was lonely in the evenings after the kids were in bed. We didn't have to have a big conversation. It was just having someone present and I could cook a dinner and there was somebody in the house to, you know, bring things kind of back to normal because my whole world was shattered. Nothing was normal. And I didn't have anybody to cook for because my kids were little. So he just showed up and had dinner with us, watched a movie and left. It wasn't anything complicated. It's just being there. his other, his other best friend, Brian, had promised himself, him and his wife were um, really good Christian people. They sat down and had a conversation about how they were going to handle this, and they decided the best thing they could do is just show up and be there. So when she discovered my laundry wasn't getting done, because one day I was doing laundry and I realized I was trying to separate my jeans from his jeans, and his jeans weren't there anymore, and that caused me to have a little meltdown, and I just stopped doing laundry. So she showed up at my house. She didn't say a word. She didn't ask why I wasn't doing laundry. She just showed up to my house and started doing my laundry. And, you know, on Thursday night was trash night, and Brian knew that. He just showed up at the house, and he'd, like, walk inside, say, hey, how you doing? And on his way out the door, take the trash to the curb because he knew that was trash night, and he knew I probably wasn't going to do it. Those people were absolutely lifesavers in the beginning because they didn't make me feel bad about it because when you lose a spouse, things that were normal – and things that happened, you know, you had a routine. Things happened, and he took the trash down, and I cooked dinner, and I did the laundry, and I did this. Half of the piece was missing, and I didn't know how to function without it. And if somebody questioned me about it, it made me feel shamed and guilty. But when they just showed up and did the stuff for me, you know, there was nothing better than that. Or another time, I just couldn't deal with the kids that night, and Kathy, I called her, and I said, I, I'm having a rough night. I can't deal with the kids. She walked in the door, she got their winter coats on them, and out the door she went with them without asking a question. People like that are amazing. And they just seem to know yeah, how to, to do things. And like I said, there's no book, there's no no instruction manual, this is what you do. And right. they just show up and they're like, okay, here we go. Yeah. And Brian, you know, he was the guy, that he worked midnights with Brandy, so he was a co-worker, and he was suffering too. And he had a really hard time because about six to eight months after Brandy died, I decided... I couldn't handle, it was a small town, everybody's eyes were on me, I couldn't handle it anymore, and I packed up and moved back to my hometown about 40 minutes away, and that's when Brian really melted down, because he couldn't, you know, he no longer knew what to do with himself, because his job after that was making sure Sarah's trash was taken out, and stopping by the house, and making sure that I was okay, and that's when he really got a grieve, is when I moved away, and started, you know, doing things on my own again, then he kind of had his meltdown. Gotcha. So in a way, you were part of his coping mechanisms. Right. Taking care of me was his coping mechanism. And he's, you know, out of that department, it's been 15 years now, and it was a small department, about 20, less than 20 officers at the time Brady was killed. And now there's a lot more officers. I don't even know half of them anymore, but there's only a handful of people at that department that I still talk to to this day. And Brian is one of them. And then his sergeant retired, Lee, was the other one. And it only takes, you know, one or two people within the department of, like, you know, what do we do? Um, A lot of people didn't know what to do. But as the years went on, like, Lee would every year on the kid's birthday um, gather up a 
collection of money like you do in departments. You know, when somebody has a birthday, an anniversary, gets married, you take a collection and get them a card or whatever. That's what they started doing. Lee would every year on the boys' birthday get them a card, have everybody in the department sign it, and get a gift card for the boys. And it was that small remembrance like that. It made the boys feel really special and give them connections to their dad. It gave them names on that card of people to talk to. Now, to this day, Landon, uh, my oldest, has become involved and is riding along with the department because those people kept those connections open. Um, We had a poker run in memory of my husband, and they bought a dog um, with the funds for Marion City Police Department. And the dog was named after my husband at six, and my son and the handler for six had become, like, best friends. He was at Landon's graduation party. Landon just Saturday night went and rode along with him because he wants to be a police officer and he oh, no. to experience what his dad. Oh no! Um, Did you have like a little friends? A, a little like moment? You go. You want to do what? <laughs> I knew what he was going to do all yeah. day, from the time he was little. Mom's no. Um, yeah, and Brandy came from a law enforcement family. His dad was a police officer. His brother was a police officer. His grandfather was a police officer. So it's kind of a natural progression that my kids are probably going to be police officers. One of the things, and it's so ironic you bring that up, that my friend who was killed in the line of duty, that um, I was a sergeant, and I transferred a couple months later, he was he was murdered. His son is now a Baltimore police officer and has been for about five years. And there was no inclination to do that. But what he did, Kim, who is a widow, said, I had to talk with God and said, it's not going to happen twice, and I know you'll take care of him, and he's going to be okay. And she kind of let it go. Well, see, Marion County, where I came from, it's Marion County, Ohio, by the way. I mean, I know I'm in Sarasota, Florida right now, but um, there is actually the last line of duty death was um, a deputy who died in a car accident. And then um, two years later, his son was a state trooper following in his footsteps and was hit by a car from the department I come from. The woman had lost her husband and son to line of duty death. We're talking with Sarah Winfield. Uh, about the murder of her husband, Deputy Brandy Winfield, and more importantly, what it's taken for her and her family to get to where they're at today. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. Take a short break. We'll be right back. Missed an episode of Law Enforcement Today? You don't have to anymore because now you can listen to it on Podopolo, the free new app that makes listening anytime, anywhere so easy. Catch up on shows you've missed and chat with John J. Wiley right there, too. Download for free on the Apple or Google Play stores. That's Podopolo. And John J. Wiley wants to hear from you inside Podopolo. This is a Law Enforcement Today show. We are joined by Sarah Winfield. Sarah's calling us from Sarasota, Florida. Her husband, late deputy Brandy Winfield, was murdered in the line of duty in October of 2004. You are much better talking about this than I am, Sarah, and you're making it much easier for me, so I I thank you very, very much for doing that. I'd imagine you've talked about this a few times with people. Right. I'm very active in concerns of police survivors. We have debriefings, so I've told this story over and over again. I've done lots of media interviews, and it's actually pretty comfortable at this point for me to talk about it, and it's actually very healing to tell your story. Well, thank you for uh, sharing it with us. Let's go to the the night in question. Your husband was on the job, I believe, about six years. Uh, You're married. You had two small children at the time. Uh, What happened? Um, Brandy worked midnights. 
He um, was sent to a call for a disabled motorist to check on the disabled motorist. He went down and checked the car. Um, the deputy, actually, he had volunteered to take the call because the deputy who was covering that area was covering a stolen vehicle at the uh, grocery store. So Brady went down and checked the vehicle. It was abandoned, um, laid out some flares, and he said he was going to go down to the gas to see if anybody had been in for gas. Um, along that ride, he came across um, Juan Cruz. He was an illegal. Um, offered him a ride. There was another. There was a driver that uh, had must have stepped off when he saw Brandy coming and got away so that he didn't see him. Um, Brandy offered him a ride home because he said that he said that van's not mine. There's another car that I was driving trying to get home. He was drunk um, and he had, uh, had a cocaine in the car. Um, Brandy offered him a ride home and he told the dispatcher he was going to go check the other car. Um, ran the name in DOB because he didn't have an um, idea on him. Um, as they're driving around looking for the other car, the dispatcher came back that the um, not in file NCIC that uh, there's not 31 days in April because he had given a false DOB. At that point, Brady, I listened to the audio. The cruise, uh, I used to be a dispatcher, so you know, that was very healing for me to listen to the audio, figure things, listen to his voice. And you could tell he was mad. He said, stand by. And when that's the point, he stopped the cruiser, um, turned around to talk to him and had the partition open in the cruiser, and he immediately shot him behind the right ear. Um, then he shot out the back. or They're not sure if he shot out or kicked out the back window of the cruiser. Um, and then he pushed Brandy's body aside, drove the cruiser, flipping it upside down. Um, at that point, they were starting to look for Brandy because he wasn't answering the radio after saying, stand by. And somebody called 911 reporting the cruiser upside down in the ditch. And that's when units went down there. The car was still there that he had originally checked on. Um, Juan Cruz was on the run for about three days uh, or two and a half days. He had gotten out into a field. They said the He said in his um, interview later that the canines were actually right next to him and missed him when he was laying in the field. Um, hit on a farm for a few days, and then when he walked into town, they um, had put so much pressure on the Hispanic community that they immediately began calling 911 when he walked into the apartment complex in town, and they were able to capture him. So basically, your husband was just trying to give this guy a break. And that was typical of Brandy. Brandy was, um, you know, he grew up in the town. His dad was a police officer in the town. His brother was a police officer in that town. He grew up in that town, knew a lot of people. When people got drunk on Friday night, they would call Brandy and say, hey, I got drunk, give me a ride home. And he'd run over and grab him and give him a ride home. Um, that was a very typical of my husband. And it was very typical of him to give people a break. My mom and I were just talking about this story today that he was that officer that everybody wanted to talk to. You know, if they got in trouble, I'll, I'll have Winfield come in, I'll talk to him. He'd worked in the jail for years. He'd made a lot of connections. He grew up in that town. And I would like go to the grocery store with my husband and, you know, two-toothed Carl would come walking up. Hey, Bernie, how are you doing? And yeah, everybody say, knew him. <laughs> Who is this? Yeah. And he would sit and have a conversation with this person. And I'd keep shopping and he'd come, like, come back to me. I'm like, who is that? He's like, oh, that's so-and-so. He gets drunk every Friday night. Nicest guy you'd ever meet. He's just an idiot when he's drunk. He saw the best in people, and he really, his philosophy in law enforcement was he didn't hate the people. He hated what they did. Right, yeah. Then he always gave the person the second chance. So it was very typical of my husband, and he also didn't search the guy that he put into his car. I think, you know, in his thought process is I'm just going to get the guy home. I'm not going to hook him up with any charges, even though I could and give him a break and get him home. In his mind, the, the guy wasn't a bad guy. He just needed some help. Right. 
and that's a pretty common scenario in law enforcement that, that the news media doesn't seem to to put out there they make it no, as if we're very adversarial in our community and we're not we know a lot of the people we deal with and you know who's got a drug problem you know who's got an alcohol problem you know who's be fighting on, on fridays and, and you deal with it and that sounds and like the kind of Brandon, guy I mean, you got he knew was. that this was an illegal he knew what was up with this guy and he could have given him a rough time but that's not who he was as a person he was going to give him a break and give him a ride and help him out and that's the, you know, after he died, that's the common theme I heard from everybody is it was a relief if I was, something was happening and I was going to be in trouble if Brandy was the one who showed up. Because I knew I was going to get a break, I was going to get help. And without going into a lot of technicalities, policing, city police, county police, sheriffs, whatever, you assist ICE, you assist the federal agencies, but we didn't actively enforce immigration laws. And we right. quite often knew who was there illegally or undocumented, or whatever term people want to use. And we never arrested him because you didn't have the state or local laws to be able to do it. And therefore, it wasn't part of your job description. That's another thing nowadays that the news media seems to love to play off of that it's very adversarial. And politicians certainly aren't helping matters at all. Well, that's the other thing with Brandy, too, that night is, oh, it ended up that that guy, Juan Cruz, had a warrant or previously he thought he had a warrant. He didn't at the time, but he thought he had a warrant. That's what he said in the interview later, that he thought he had a warrant. He had beat his pregnant girlfriend with a crowbar. So that's who Brandy was dealing with that night, but it was unbeknownst to him what type of this was. And when they asked him why to choose to shoot the officer when he was just asking about your name in DOB, he said, I had bad experiences with police officers, is what was the comment was. I was drunk, and I had bad experiences with police officers. I actually said my victim impact statement to him at the, he did a three judge panel plea deal. I looked him straight in the face and I said, had anybody ever just been nice to you? Because that's what it came down to. You know, my husband was nice to you and he got killed for it. And that's, that's uh, really the only way you can explain it. He, he tried to give the guy a break. Right. And the guy murdered him. Right. Right. And then, you know, how many times I know tons of deputies who, and a lot of them around where Brandy works at don't do it anymore. You would put someone in the back of your cruiser without searching them. You know, you pick up a woman with two kids along the road with a disabled vehicle, and you throw her and the kids in the back of your car and give her a ride to the gas station. Right. You don't search that woman, but they started doing it after Brandy was killed because they don't know who has a gun. And unfortunately, that's the way it got with us. Uh, that right. was ingrained, and I'm not making a statement uh, about your husband's situation, but it was ingrained and drilled to us, I mean, nonstop. The, the phrase is complacency kills. The moment mm-hmm. where you did not search someone, you did not frisk them for whatever reason, is the moment that your life could be taken. Uh, and you know, people don't walk around. And the around anger with, I had at him for that oh, took me years to get over that anger because he was a pretty safe officer. I mean, we would go past state troopers, you know, when we were driving, and it's very typical of a state trooper to walk up in Ohio on the passenger side of the car. And Brandy hated that, saying you can't, you get, a, you don't have a good view of the driver, and yada yada yada. That's not safe. And he was always talking about safety. So the fact that he didn't search somebody that he put in the back of his car, I was so angry for so long at him. And that's hard to deal with, too, because you have this person who's being displayed as a hero. Everybody really wants to talk about the best things about him. And there were many wonderful things about him, but I was so mad at him and thought he was so stupid for not searching him. I was mad. 
And I think that's probably that's pretty a really hard normal. thing to be, come to terms with is being mad at somebody that you love that much. On that note, we're going to take a short break. We are talking with Sarah Winfield. This is a Law Enforcement Today show. Don't go anywhere. So much more heading away when we come back. Have I got a deal for you? No, I'm not trying to sell you a bridge or swampland. Enter contests for your chance to win great prizes by subscribing to the Law Enforcement Today radio show email newsletter. All subscribers are automatically entered in all future contests. Sign up at letradioshow.com. Scroll down to the sign-up area. That's letradioshow.com. Are you wondering where you can find more great podcasts? Head to letradioshow.com, click Be Heard, and discover other fantastic podcasts like this one. Also available on our free app, all at letradioshow.com. This portion of the Law Enforcement Today radio show is brought to you in part by Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. Everyone's welcome at the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page, where you'll find fun, informative, and enjoyable posts daily. Purebred, mixed breeds, rescues, we love them all. Be sure to like the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. Back to our conversation with Sarah Winfield, Sarah's husband, Deputy Brandy Winfield, Marion County, Ohio Sheriff's Department, was uh, shot and killed in line of duty in October of 2004. One of the things that Hollywood loves to do, not just with police families, but first responders and military, is they love the the dramatization of the notification. And rarely do we get to hear from the survivor's point of view. So how did you become aware that the worst had happened? It's so funny that you mentioned the Hollywood version because I think that's what, what every widow imagines is that a couple of people are going to come to your door, there's going to be the clergy there, they're going to knock on the door and tell you what happened. So, you know, that's what you prepare yourself for. And that's rarely what does happen. Um, if it does, it's went very well, because that's the way it's supposed to go down. But actually, my mother-in-law, you know, her husband being a, a police officer, both of her sons being police officers, was up for some reason in the middle of the night and could hear something major going on on the scanner. A lot of chatter, that kind of stuff. She didn't totally understand the scanner, but she didn't hear Brandy's voice, and that concerned her. So she woke Rick up and said, there's something going on. Um, call the police department and see what's happening. So my father-in-law called the police department. They said they found Brandy's cruiser upside down in a ditch. All we know is they're on the way to the hospital with him. So it was 5.30, about 5.30 in the morning. My phone starts ringing. My first thought was, I'm going to kick Brandy's butt for calling me this early in the morning to tell me it's fog or something like that, because he often did that. And my father-in-law was pretty panicked on the phone. Just All he said is, they found Brandy's cruiser upside down in the get ditch, get to the hospital. So I jumped out of bed. I called work, said I'm going to be late. I don't even know how I had the you know thought process to do that. Grabbed Tyler out of his crib, grabbed Landon, and I didn't even change diapers or anything. I went out the door with my kids in tow. Drove myself to the hospital, and I started about halfway there and thought, you know, Rick and Shirley didn't have to get kids out of bed. They had to have beat me there, and they haven't called me to tell me everything's okay. And then, you know, I started the process of he's going to be sitting there, banged up me or something, and really mad because he's going to get rode up because he wrecked his cruiser. So I walked in the front door. My in-laws and everybody else walked in the back door where police officers typically go through. I went through the front door of the emergency room like I was a patient, and a girl who was likely a candy striper or a volunteer walked out, and it was pretty deserted in there, and I had both my kids with me. I'm thinking she thought I was there to be seen. Um, and I said, they brought my husband here. He's a deputy. And her face just fell, and she wouldn't look at me. And that's, you know, a common – that's what my life became. People wouldn't look at me anymore. And 
I wouldn't move. My feet were just planted. I'm holding Landon's hand. He's three. Tyler was one and a half. I had him on my hip. I said, he didn't make it, did he? And she looked down and just shook her head. So I know walking back there that he's dead, but I didn't know what happened. And as I walked in, the place is full of people already, and the kids are ripped out of my hands. I don't even know who took them. Everybody starts screaming when they see me, and the doctor walked up to me and said, your husband was shot right here. Would you like to see his body? And that was my death notification. Certainly not the way it was supposed to go. No, no, not what you imagine at all. Um, I was pretty angry for a long time about that because, you know, I they didn't have a policy and procedure. If they did have a policy and procedure, I don't think that anybody knew the policy and procedure. They probably hadn't been through it that. in They were not so prepared long. in a yeah. very small department for that. Uh, the sheriff, when he did show up at the emergency room, didn't even know who I was, walked past me and talked to my father-in-law. Um, the sheriff did not even come to my house for three days. And when he did finally show up at my house because he heard I was so angry, he showed up with a warrant and the prosecutor with him like it was a press conference. And that goes back to me talking about just be human with these people. You know, it, it's not, it's no longer policy and procedure. That's out the window when you're dealing with the family. Be a human being. Be compassionate. Be kind. Don't treat it like a press conference. Don't treat it like something within the department. You're dealing with a real family. You're walking into my home and my husband didn't come home last night. I find this very troubling that someone who's a career law enforcement officer would do that, wouldn't have, you know, I say this on one hand, Sarah, where it's like, I want to scold them. And then I go, but I'm the one who's equally afraid to to talk to the survivors. And and so I get that, but that's their job. When you, when you become police chief or police commissioner or a, a deputy commissioner or high-ranking officer, this, it comes with the territory, and you're supposed to talk to these people. I don't get it. And, well, I've heard so many nightmare stories through cops, you know, listening to the stories of other survivors, and death notification continues to be an issue even today. No matter how much education we give, there's stories of them, you know, the right type of notification where they send the officer – and they throw him in the back of a cruiser and tell them all the way there, oh, he's going to be okay. He's going to be okay. No. Only to know he's already dead. You can't do that. Don't lie we, we to were them. Trained, them. It's bad. We're getting you there as yeah. fast as we can. Be honest. We were trained early on. I mean, as rookies in the academy, it was one of the things we had to do. And I remember getting a call. Uh, my dispatcher said, call me at, uh, at this number. So I did. It wasn't on the radio. And I said, you have to make a death notification. That this is the family's name. This is their address. And her son, who's 23, was killed in a car accident in Ohio, of all places. And you got to let them know. It's like 2 o'clock in the morning. And one of the things we were taught is you just have to be honest and tell them. There's no right way to say it. You, you just have to. You, and you can't cushion a blow. You've just got to say i'm sorry but this is why i'm here and this is what happened and it's all i know well there are good words to use and bad words i mean like the doctor in my case he was shot right here would you like to see his body she kind of needed to work on her bedside banner a bit i think but there's the being honest and being brash yeah you know, use honest words and be kind and compassionate about it i'm still blown away by the the doctor uh the sheriff and that you and were basically the other ignored. Thing they can't fix. That's that's what gets like would make me cry, get me upset. They cannot fix how my kids found out their dad was dead. For Tyler, he grew up and he just didn't have a dad. He just grew up. He never. He was never told. He was one and a half years old. So nobody ever sat down and told 
my son, your dad is dead. He just grew up and knew daddy was dead. Landon, I'm pretty sure that's his first memory. He was three and a half. About the time you start to remember things. And he still talks about the lady who brought him Pop-Tarts at the hospital. You know, that's his first memory is walking into a hospital and mommy taking him into a room and saying, a bad guy shot your daddy. Do you know what that means? They can't fix the fact that I walked in that hospital with a one and a three-year-old in my arms. And I didn't have, you know, I didn't have any controlled environment to sit down and tell my kids in a kind and compassionate way that their dad was dead. That leaves me speechless that um, that you you had to go through this horrible trauma, uh, lose your husband, and then all that that the combined added on to it by the way things were handled, uh, which is quite frankly inexcusable. Yeah, it is just a little bit of preparation ahead of time, thinking about these things and sitting down and writing a really good policy, uh, so that you're prepared to deal with if, if something happens. No matter how small your department is, it can happen there. That's I think what a lot of departments depend on is, oh, this is a small town. Nothing ever happens here. Those days are long gone. Right. And I I don't know that they ever really existed. You know, when I was a city police, I thought the county guys had it easy. And the further they were from the city, the easier they had it. I didn't realize how tough it was and how few of them there were. Right. So for them, backup was a long ways away. And they went through everything we went through. Uh, It just wasn't as frequent, but there was less of them. So I guess that their frequency was the same. Right. Well, Brandy was working a county with three officers that night. There were three officers on duty. The one was tied up. Brandy took the call, and his sergeant, uh, to this day, beats himself up because he says, I didn't check on Brandy. That's what he came to my house saying is, you know, I, I knew I probably should have checked on him. I said, he was checking a disabled vehicle, Lee. Yeah, I said, he would kiss your butt if you checked on him on something like that. Oh, such yeah. a routine call. But that guilt, the survivor's guilt, is it, it's oh. a tough thing. It's tough to get rid of. Yes beat themselves up over not checking on Brandy, but I'm like, it was a disabled vehicle call. He had handled a million of those calls. Yeah, and there's no indication that, that it could be bad, uh, that the worst possible thing could be occurring. Um, right. And that's where we get back to the conversation that that these things can happen anytime, anywhere, to anyone uh, as a first responder. And I say the first responders, law enforcement, firefighters, EMTs, corrections officers, they are all at risk all the time. They know it. Their spouses know it. Uh, but it's something that we often didn't talk about. We're going to take a short break. We're talking with Sarah Winfield. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. If you're on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app, be sure to look for me and follow me. My name's John, the letter J, Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y. You can also search for at... L-E-T Radio Show. That's John J. Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y, at L-E-T Radio Show on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app. Hey, folks, when you have a chance, check out our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. When you get there, click like and follow. That's click, like, and follow Law Enforcement Today Radio radio show on Facebook. Joining us on the phone, Sarah Winfield calling from Sarasota, Florida. Uh, Sarah is making this conversation a whole lot easier for me than it could have been. Uh, Sarah's husband, Deputy Sheriff Brandy Winfield, was shot and murdered in line of duty in a senseless act of violence. And I hate when people say that because in reality, all of them are senseless, but there was nothing to indicate that this was any more than a disabled car call and that he was trying to give the person a break uh, we talked about how you're notified, how everything was done wrong, about how 
your two children, uh, they were very young when this occurred. Being part of a, a married couple raising two kids to all of a sudden having one unexpectedly killed and then having to do everything it just blows my mind. Yeah, that was very difficult. You go from having your life mapped out. I had, you know, I guess put it the best way, I had the white picket fence. I had, you know, the two kids and the husband that I always wanted, and he was a great guy, and we had built a house young. We got married young. Uh, we ran to, off to Hawaii to get married together. We saved everything we had and built our first home. So we had everything we wanted. It was going perfect, and I you know, he told me he loved me before he walked out the door that night. The next morning, my life was flipped upside down, and I didn't know what to do anymore. I had no clue how to do this one. Everything was mapped out with him in it, and everything in my life revolved around him being a part of it, and I had no reference how to do that alone. Luckily, the morning that it happened, Linda Pope, from she was the Ohio Cops president at the time. She actually formed the Ohio Cops chapter. Angie McDowell, her husband was a Whitehall police officer who'd been killed in 2001, and Chrissy Vasquez, who was husband was a state trooper killed in 2000, showed up at my door. And they were like a lifeline to me. It was somebody that knew exactly what I was going through. And even though I kind of ignored them at first because I was just in a fog, it was just like this little pinprick of light. There's somebody that understands me here. And I became heavily involved with concerns of police survivors. And like I said, I moved away. You know, all of a sudden I felt judged. I felt like everybody was watching me. Everybody wanted to know what Sarah was going to do next. Everybody had an opinion about how I was handling being a widow when, you know, widowhood doesn't come with a manual. And I kind of sucked at it. So there were these women that knew what I was going through, and there were these resources that were available to me. And as soon as I could, I got my kids to Cops Kids Camp. And being a widow destroys your confidence. I was a very confident wife. I was destroyed as a widow, and I had no clue what to do with myself. I was convinced I was a horrible mother. I was convinced my kids were going to grow up and be horrible people because I was messing up so bad. There were times that I didn't get out of bed. My aunt would come and clean my whole house, and I just didn't get out of bed at all. And my kids are two and four running around the house fending for themselves. So when I got to Cops Kids Camp, I was convinced that I was the most horrible mother in the whole entire world, that my kids were destined to go to prison. And the first time that anybody sat me down and just looked me straight in the eye and said, Sarah, you are a good mother, was on the hill at Cops Kids Camp while my kids were swimming. Angie McGowan is one of the uh, mental health professionals for Concerns of Police Survivors. And she just plain and simply told me, you are a good mother. And that started that to be able to build that confidence again to say, I can do this on my own. Before my husband was killed, I didn't drive in big cities by myself. I didn't even drive the kids to doctor's appointments in Columbus. And here I was hopping in the car with my boys and taking them to cop's kids camp and driving through Chicago by myself. And even just that, just that act of getting in the car and taking them to this event to help them heal taught me independence. Thank God there's people like Concerns of Police Survivors. They, they right. do such wonderful things. And, you know, and as much as I would love to be able to help people like you, I don't know what to do because I don't have the experience. I, I can't speak from having gone through it. Well, there's some of the best people at Cops Kids Camp. We um, Several years ago, they started making it into mentors that came in. And they're regular police officers. They maybe lost a coworker in the line of duty, but they volunteered to come to that camp, and they sleep in the cabins with those kids. And uh, Tom Ostrowski was a FBI agent, and um, an older guy retired, 
and he had the six-year-old, but he was so cute with the six-year-old. And he, we walked in one day, and Tom's surrounded by six-year-old little boys who just discovered that everybody else in that room, their dad died too. Because when you're six years old, and you're in like a place like Marion, Ohio, or Marysville, Ohio, where we're growing up, you're the only kid who has a daddy who's dead. So discover that every other little boy in that room had a dad who was dead. They were all like, how'd your dad die? How'd your dad die? How'd your dad die? And they're just telling these stories. And you know, Tom's handling it like a champ because he's listening to these little six-year-old boys tell horrific stories of how their dad died. And one little guy looks up at Tom and says, how'd your dad die? He goes, well, of old age. And the little boy says, what's that? So these mentors really get to the chance. And they're just, you know, anybody can volunteer to be a mentor at Cops Kids Camp. And you got police officers dressing up in dresses and putting makeup and wigs on to do skits with the kids. They're out there swimming with the kids. And that connection to those officers is invaluable. To this day, my kids call some of their cops' kids camp mentors to discuss things with them. When my son wanted to discuss college, he called Mark Elliott, the canine handler with a dog named after my husband, and he called some of his cops' kids mentors to talk to them about his college options. So those relationships formed with those police officers at Cops Kids Camp are invaluable to our kids, and anybody can volunteer to do that. It's amazing that these people do that. And uh, one of the things I've heard from other survivors is the value of having retreats and getaways uh, for adult children, for spouses, that there is... Like you said earlier, you felt like a horrible mother, like you're doing everything wrong, and you didn't mm-hmm. even realize till you got around people that been in the same situation, and they could talk about it with you. Right, you're sitting in a group counseling session, and you, you open up about what's happened to you or how you feel, that I felt like a horrible mother, that I felt like I couldn't handle this on my own, that it probably should have been me that died because the kids would be better off with Brandy, and there's some other woman who raises her hand and says, hey, me too. You know, that, there's nothing like in the world, like somebody saying, hey, me too. And then you can discuss it with one another. And then and now the cop staff, a lot of times, whenever somebody's struggling with a teenage child, they refer them to me because of how honest I've been. My 16-year-old Tyler was a nightmare because when he was, you know, he was one and a half when his dad died. And I shut down. I didn't parent. And I didn't follow any of the plans Brandy and I had. I just handed him whatever he wanted. He got every gift in the world he wanted because his daddy died. And I created a little monster. And it was hard bringing that kid back. Um, I actually sent him two years ago to the wilderness. At, at 14 years old, I sent him into the wilderness for three months. Spent a huge chunk of money getting him out there to get him fixed, to get him ha- the help that he needed because he was just angry. How is he doing? Oh, no, the, your oldest, Landon, wants to go into law enforcement. How is the youngest yeah. doing? He's at young adults camp right now with other kids his age. And he's still a teenager. Uh, but I'm okay with him just being a teenager because the anger is gone. He really learned in the wilderness how to deal with his anger. There were some excellent counselors out there you know, that really made him confront that he had control issues. And uh, the first two weeks in the wilderness, they, you know, I'm not talking about my dad. This has nothing to do with my dad. I'm not this way because of my dad. And about the third weekend, um, the counselor called me because we would have weekly sessions with each other, and then um, every two weeks I would have count- I, once a week I'd have sessions with Tyler. He said, uh, we had a breakthrough. Tyler wants to talk about his dad. And this little boy, he wanted to control everything in his life because first thing that ever happened to him is that everything went out of control. 
you know, he used anger, he used manipulation to try to control every situation around him to maintain control. And even if it was negative attention, it was attention, and he could get he could get control of the situation. And it's a way of manipulating and and keeping Lisa control. I, I know for me peri- uh, periodically, and I've I made a lot of progress, but you know, when I get really fearful, I get very very angry. And mm-hmm. I found that anger is a great way to keep people at at arm's length or di- further. Because you know, when you're really angry, people don't want to come near you. And if they don't come near you, they can't hurt you and they can't disappoint you. And with him, we discussed that in wilderness is that you know, he's a man. He had three emotions, happy, angry, and hungry. <laughs> Look, no. I'm a, tell him this. I'm like 60 years old and I got like four emotions now. So, you know. <laughs> He's, he's, he's added a few new emotions. He, he's uh, doing pretty darn good then. Uh, uh, before we close, um, what would be the one thing you would tell people to do, either in law enforcement or out, when this does happen? Because we know it's going to happen again. Right. I mean, my formula, I guess you could say, is prepare. Um, cops have some wonderful trainings. They have a national conference. They have a wellness conference. They have uh, trauma law enforcement training that will go over to be prepared for a line of duty death. If it does happen, remember to be human. Don't turn into a robot with things and that need to be done. I have to do the press conference, I have to do this, I have to do that. You know, when Brady died, like I said, my sheriff showed up three days later with a warrant in his hand and with a prosecutor treated it like a press conference. The sheriff that I worked for in Union County come walking through my door with a meat tray and cookies and wanted to sit down and talk to me. That's the way to be do it. Be human. Yeah, be human. Be that, you know, what can we do to help her? Be human. Uh, be what can present. we do to help this whole family? Sarah Winfield, thanks so very much for coming on the Law Enforcement Show and telling your story. Very much appreciated. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.